we are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hi guys and welcome to Politics Math, a weekly podcast where we chat about all the domestic and international politics other than coronavirus. I'm Ollie. And I'm Raul. This week in the domestic section, we discuss the detail of the Russia report released this week in the UK. What implications does it have for the UK security ties and how vulnerable are we? And after that, we'll discuss the Labour anti-Semitism court case in the aftermath of a settlement by the Labour Party for a few people who accused the Labour Party's process of anti-Semitism, what does this say about the Labour Party's current direction? And on the international front, we'll be looking ahead to the 2020 presidential election. So we'll be weighing up both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's chances in the election. And then we'll be looking ahead to the situation currently going on in Portland and the situation with federal officers there. Brilliant. So let's kick things off. I mean, last week we discussed the Russia report a little bit, Ollie, and, you know, we were kind of speculating to a certain extent what was going to come out. We were talking about the way in which the chair of the new intelligence committee was appointed and then subsequently lost the Tory whip. Now the report's come out. Talk us through it. Yeah, so the big news of the Russia report is that there was actually no investigation done into whether or not Russia meddled in any of our elections. Well, it basically began by criticising the government for not allowing the publication sooner. And it said that, you know, Russia posed a clear threat through various cyber campaigns, various influencing campaigns. But it made the point that nothing had been investigated by the UK Security Service. And they actually went on to say that the UK government had actively avoided looking for evidence. So this is a clip of the report being released on Tuesday. There has, however, been speculation that this report was going to reveal either that Russia had interfered in or sought to influence the referendum. In the committee's view, it's worse than that. The report reveals that no one in government knew if Russia interfered in or sought to influence the referendum because they did not want to know. The UK government have actively avoided looking for evidence that Russia interfered. Yeah, I mean, that was the, the phrase that I thought was particularly damning this week, that Britain tr didn't try actively not to investigate these claims, which I found astonishing because this is serious stuff. Meddling in elections, the end of the Scottish independence referendum, the Brexit referendum. This is not this is not some sort of local matter. These are high scale country changing votes and and issues for the UK. And to, to say that they weren't actively investigating it on purpose, I mean, What's what's the rationale that's come out behind that? Yeah, and it's interesting you should say that because Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, actually came out and completely uh, disagreed with that statement. He said, you know, they it wasn't true that they'd actively avoided looking for evidence, and he he drew back to the um, Salisbury poisoning attack and basically reminded them of the fact that you know they'd expelled so, so many Russian diplomats. But the report was quite clear on some things. It said Russia did try and influence the 2014 Scottish independence referendum. But what it did say is it didn't expose anything about 2016 and the EU referendum. It couldn't say anything about that, which is what many people thought it might do. And indeed, when it came to PMQs on Wednesday, 
when Keir Starmer challenged Boris Johnson on the apparent lack of action, Boris Johnson claimed he was just an Islington Remainer trying to undermine Brexit, and then went on to criticise him for his silence when Jeremy Corbyn had failed to take a strong stance on the Salisbury poisoning attack, which Starmer later proved was untrue because he had actually come out and criticised it uh, on Question Time a few years ago. And we've got a clip of PMQs right here. One of the starkest conclusions in the report is that the UK is clearly a target for Russian disinformation campaigns. The report also highlights that this is being met with a fragmented response across Whitehall and across the government. The report refers to this as a hot potato with no one organisation recognising itself as having the overall lead. That's a serious gap in our defences. This is not about powers, it's about responsibility, Prime Minister. So how is the Prime Minister going to address that gap and make sure the UK meets this threat with the joined-up, robust response it deserves? Uh, Mr Speaker, there is no other government in the world that takes some more robust steps to protect our uh, democracy, to protect our critical national infrastructure and to protect our intellectual property, as I have said, uh, from interference by Russia or by anyone else. And frankly, I think that everybody understands that these criticisms are motivated by a desire to undermine the referendum on the European Union, uh, the membership of the European Union, that took place uh, last uh, in, in 2016, the result of which he simply cannot bring himself to accept. And it was pretty clear from that that Starmer was keen to take a strong line on Russia and also show his credentials having worked on national security as a director of public prosecutions. So this is, we've got two issues to discuss here then really. One, the fact that the Brexit referendum wasn't really kind of, the, the report kind of skirted around it. Why do you think that was? I mean, was it I wouldn't expect that the government, the UK government could have meddled in it, but it seems a bit coincidental or convenient, I should say. And then the second thing is, yet again, uh, um, I noticed in Starmer's uh, response to this, that he quite clearly drew a line in the sand about what happened previously, condemned the previous leaders dithering on whether the Salisbury poisonings were carried out by Russian elements, and kind of kept on towards that track of a more conventional foreign policy outlook. That's just more evidence then that Labour is moving to a more Blairite position on that on that issue. Well, I think from that respect, it's about Labour again. We've discussed it in previous weeks about them showing they have to take a strong stance on crime and international espionage. They have to be shown they are the party that will defend the country. And some criticise them under Jeremy Corbyn for not showing that kind of strength. Now, in regard to the 2016 report, obviously the report couldn't investigate something that didn't exist and if no investigations took place they're not going to be able to have any clear-cut conclusions on that the report did warn against various um, methods which can be used to influence but particularly following the the democratic party in america's hack a few years ago and they basically warned of various online campaigns bots various uh, social media influencers that could pose a threat to national security but again, they can't clearly come out and say the Russians meddled in the election if no investigations have taken place. Interesting. I guess we're, this is the story that's going to be on running in the next few years as the UK and the West takes an increasingly hard line on both Russia and China. Interesting stuff. Let's move on now to the next domestic piece we want to discuss. There's been a court settlement between people who were previously in the Labour Party's disputes team and the Labour Party itself. Talk us through what the court case entailed. 
So basically, over a year ago now, Panorama launched an investigation asking, is Labour anti-Semitic? And it was led by a journalist called John Ware. Now, that Panorama episode included many former party staff members who made accusations against the party and gave interviews. And basically, the party at the time came out and said these people were motivated by opposition to Jeremy Corbyn and that Ware had been trying to mislead the public. Now, they, those people have sued the Labour Party, and the party have now settled and given a formal apology to those former employees and John Ware. And what this has meant is the party has obviously settled, and it's cost them about £600,000 in legal fees with about 180,000 in damages, that's according to The Guardian. So that's quite a significant amount of money. But I suppose it's about Keir Starmer trying to draw a line under this issue of anti-Semitism. He's made it very clear this is something he wants to tackle. And this is just another statement in that. But Lisa Nandy uh, went on TV at the time and she said that settling was the right decision. Well, I just really welcome this. I was one of the very many people in the Labour Party who spoke out um, about the treatment of those whistleblowers. Um, and I think this is a welcome step forward that shows that Labour is now taking this seriously um, and um, justice is being done. We've, we've acknowledged that we got it wrong. That is the right thing to do. And we're taking steps today to set it right. So it cost about £600,000 with £180,000 in damages. This is going to hurt the party quite a bit, surely. Yeah, it's obviously a significant amount of money. And the other thing you've got to remember about these costs is the Labour leaks report, which you may remember came out a few months ago, is also going to incur a lot of legal fees because many people are going to sue the party based on that as well. Because as you might remember, there were certain whistleblowers who were named in that report and certain other members of staff of the party who have also said they're going to sue because of it. So this could just be the start of a series of legal fees for the Labour Party, and this could cost them a significant amount of money. So obviously, um, Jeremy Corbyn came out against this in quite a lengthy Facebook post, calling it a political decision and saying that the legal advice had been that they would win and therefore the settling was absolutely ridiculous. He's made his first significant foray into Labour politics since he stepped down as leader. Are we going to see a re-emergence of Corbyn as a kind of vocals spokesman for the left wing of the party now, do you think? Well, I think in this particular instance, this is about him defending his record. He basically said it risks giving credibility to the accusations that Labour did not try to tackle anti-Semitism. So from Corbyn's perspective, this is about defending his record as leader of the party. And Len McCluskey, the uh, General Secretary of the Union Unite, also echoed these words. Now, what this has basically meant is John Ware, the journalist who led the Panorama investigation, is now apparently taking legal action against Corbyn. And this has resulted in a funding page being set up to pay for Corbyn's legal fees. Now, currently, that's raised about 150000 for those fees, which is a significant amount of money. And I've seen a lot of newspaper headlines now saying this is going to reignite the party's internal civil war. And obviously, given infighting and the anti-Semitism question are two things that Keir Starmer has tried desperately to try and end, this could go quite badly, but... We, we don't know yet how far the members of the far left will try and take this. Certainly one to watch then. And we're still awaiting this report from the Equality and Human Rights Commission in the UK, aren't we? Yeah, and that could... We don't know what's in that yet, but we obviously know the party have been sent a initial draft of what could be in it. 
But um, when that's released, that could be incredibly significant. It will be very interesting seeing how this stacks up for the Labour Party in the upcoming months, because obviously anti-Semitism is something they want to end in the party. Kistan has been very clear on that, and they'll presumably be hoping they can draw a line under all of this once all that's over. Definitely one to watch then in the next few weeks. Let's move on to the international section now and discuss Trump's electoral chances. This week has been quite uh, marked in that there's been a shift in tone that, uh, from the president on various issues, but the main one is, of course, the COVID crisis in the US. You know, he said things like it's going to get worse before it gets better. And he's come out and said wearing masks is patriotic after kind of, you know, fluffing and blustering on the issues for quite some time. Now, obviously, we're not going to go into the coronavirus aspect of it, but in terms of the political aspect, it's very interesting. There's clearly been something that's changed that's led to this drastic change in Trump's rhetoric. Yeah, and you would presume that is because of his electoral chances, mightn't you? Yes, um, I mean, they're really not good right now. Notably, the Trump re-election campaign has appointed a new head, Bill Stefine, um, who's an experienced political operative. He took the reins of Mr. Trump's election campaign this month after demoting Brad Pascal, um, who was the previous one. And that was, this was after, if you remember, about a month or two ago, a quite farcical uh, Trump campaign rally in Tulsa, uh, where the stadium was like a quarter full. It's also come after Trump's been receiving a lot of bad press. Um, in particular, I thought very interesting on Monday this week or Sunday in the US, there was a very wide ranging interview conducted by a man called Chris Wallace, who's a, an interviewer for Fox News with the president. I definitely urge all of our listeners to actually watch it in full because it was a very, very impressive political interview. Here's one clip I picked out of it that kind of symbolised uh, the old Trump style of of giving interviews and rhetoric. And I think it's quite noticeable why he switched. Let's hear the clip. Now they want to change. 1492, Columbus discovered America. You know, we grew up, you grew up, we all did. That's what we learned. Now they want to make it the 1619 Project. Where did that come from? What does it represent? I don't even know. It's so slavery. That's what they're saying, but they don't even know. They just want to make a change. And Biden yes. wants to fund the fund. Sir, sir, he does not. Look, he signed a charter with Bernie Sanders. I will get that one, just like I was right on the mortality rate. Did you read the charter that he agreed to? It says to nothing about defunding the Oh, plan. really? It says abolish, it says abolish. Let's go. All right. Get well, me, you get me the charter, please. This whole idea of re-election in the US obviously is an issue of the electoral college system, which obviously is unique to the United States. And we know that in the US, the national polls aren't especially important because obviously Clinton, I think, won the popular vote in 2016 by almost three million more votes. So the key in the US, I guess, similar to constituencies perhaps in the UK, is to win certain states to get that all-important electoral college majority. That's very true. And before we go any further, it's worth explaining to our listeners exactly how the electoral college works. Um, people should see the presidential election in the US not as a national election, but as 50 individual state elections. In every single state, um, the candidate for presidency who wins the most votes, which doesn't necessarily mean over 50% of votes, but just more than any other candidate, takes that state's electoral college votes. Now, these college votes are determined by their population size, roughly. Um, technically, it's the amount of Senate seats they have, which is always two, and the amount of House of uh, Representative seats they have, which is anywhere between one, I think something like 50 for California. And that gives you the figures of the electoral college votes that each state is apportioned. Whoever gets more than half of the electoral college votes, I think it's something like 270 votes, wins the presidency. 
interestingly, you only need to get more than any other candidate in a specific state to win all of that state's electoral college votes. It's a, it's a winner takes all type of model, excepting a few states like Nebraska and Maine, I should say. And this means that the vast majority of states really don't really matter. California has, I believe, about 50 to 55 um, electoral college votes. It almost always votes with a majority of Democrats, which means that those 55 votes or so always go to the Democrats. No one's really in contention for that. The same way as Oklahoma always kind of goes Republican. That leaves certain swing states, which are all that matter in this election, as you said. Um, think of states like Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Iowa. These are the places that the election is decided, New Hampshire, because they could go either way and therefore their electoral college votes could go either way. And looking at the recent polls in these specific states, it paints a very bad picture for Trump. In Florida, a state that's been won by, I think, like every presidential election for the last um, 50 years, bar one by the person who actually wins the presidency, recent polls put Biden between six and 13 points ahead in July. In Michigan, it's six between six and nine points ahead in July. In Pennsylvania, it's three to 11 points. Minnesota, 11 to 13 points. These are big, big margins. I mean, th these are margins so that such that even if you account for like a five points margin of error, Biden's still predicted to win all of these swing states handsomely. Yeah, and I've been following the polls you know, sporadically over the last couple of weeks. And something that struck me is some of the more traditional Republican states, which have actually been shown to be going Democrat, even if only by one or two points. It's very true. So two in particular have irked the interest of pollsters. Arizona, which is a traditional um, quite a traditionally quite a Republican state. It was the state of the, the late Senator John McCain. Well, a few polls have put in July the Biden campaign between one and four points ahead. Now, I should stress there is with polls, there is always about a five point margin of error. So this doesn't mean that Biden is more likely to win Arizona than not. But it does suggest that the state is in play, which is very unusual for a state like Arizona. More worryingly, Texas which is absolutely massive in terms of electoral college votes. I think it's got something like 35 and pretty much always goes Republican or it has done for quite a long time. Polls in this month have put Biden anywhere between two points behind Trump and five points ahead of Trump. What that means is that Texas is possibly in play right now. Now I should stress, in 2016, there were rumors that Texas would be in play um, between Hillary and Clinton and Donald Trump for the first time ever. In reality, what happened was that Trump won the state by a margin of eight percentage points, quite an emphatic victory. However, perhaps this time it's different. I mean, this this is not just one one kind of uh, standalone poll. These are polls that have been about five or six in some states in the month of July that have been conducted and all are showing the ticker pointing against Trump. Very worrying for the Trump campaign, you would imagine. And yeah, you can sort of see this perhaps deterioration in Trump's chances over the last couple of months. Now, I remember you told me a while ago that no sitting US president has ever been re-elected during a recession. So other than that, which obviously is a huge factor, what do you think has led to this decline in Trump's poll numbers? Well, it's I'd, I'd say definitely the economy is probably the biggest reason, as Bill Clinton says, and I think it still holds true in not just US elections, but most elections in the world. It's the economy, stupid. Uh, there are very, very few elections that really aren't decided by the key question of who do I think is going to make me better off? Possibly the Brexit election was one notable example in that regard. And therefore, in February, it was it was quite likely Trump was going to win. You know, he was he had a roaring economy. Yes, he was very divisive, but he's always been divisive. Then coronavirus hit and obviously that all went tits up. I think it's 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 the economy, but also his handling of coronavirus. It's hit certain parts of his base quite notably. For instance, Trump polled very, very well in 2016 with older, senior white white people in their 70s, 80s, etc., who swung very, very heavily behind him. Well, that's obviously a category of people 
who fear coronavirus the most and are the most affected by it due to their age. Given the way he's handled it, or the way he's been perceived to handle it, and the fact that the coronavirus epidemic is by no means over in the US, in fact, it's raging on in southern and western states, they are more worried, I think. And if Trump starts to have cracks in that element of his base, he really should be worried. And then, obviously, some of the comments that the Trump campaign has made and Trump himself has made over the last few months have been more divisive than usual, even for himself. You think of the, the protests about Black Lives Matter and his comments on that thinking of him sending federal officers to portland and chicago and other cities which we'll discuss later on think of the uh, uh, chris wallace interview that uh, we played earlier that uh, the fox news interview which was not that good really i mean all of these things have contributed to trump's poll numbers going down pretty much in a straight line from march april when this coronavirus epidemic hit and how much do you think that's down to joe biden because i've seen certain comparisons recently in newspapers basically saying biden hasn't had to do very much he's just been able to sit back and sort of let things happen then criticize when necessary similarly you might say to what keir starmer's perhaps been trying to do in the uk yes i think actually you're entirely correct the, res the, the response by both leaders if you've compared them has been one of kind of sit back and let the government in the uk or president trump in the us eats themselves up really biden has been notably um, unnoticed in the coronavirus epidemic. He's not been in the TV every single day like Trump has been. He's been actually quite criticised for hiding in his basement century of sorts, hunkering down there and sending out online political messages about why he should stay at home due to the coronavirus and wear a mask and things like that. In a sense, then, his strategy has been to let Trump destroy himself. And so far, if the polls are to be believed since March and April, this has been working, but it does come with risks. Obviously, that Chris Wallace um, interview with Fox News with President Trump was very impressive. And what else, well, another thing that was quite impressive by it was that after the day that that interview was conducted, Chris Wallace made a very public announcement that says, you might not agree what the president has said in that interview, but at least he did the interview. It's now time for you, Biden, to do an interview with me or someone else to face scrutiny, to have accountability. And I could imagine that in the next few weeks and months, as we get closer to that November election, if Biden continues this mentality of, I'm just going to sit and wait, not say anything because I don't want to hurt myself and I just want to, people to see, you know, Trump flip-flopping and destroying himself, he could start to come into criticism for that. It wouldn't be sleepy Joe, as the Trump campaign likes to say, it would be scared Joe, which I think is a very, very dangerous vulnerability for him and his campaign. So I guess the main question here is then, will Trump be able to bounce back from these poll numbers or will perhaps this new strategy, you know, play out and change his prospects? It could, it could definitely. I mean, it's his new demeanour has been much more traditionally statesmanlike. And in theory, if he gets on top of the coronavirus epidemic in the southern and western states, um, and he keeps the script on a host of other issues, it's possible that his poll numbers could bounce back. I mean, he's still in the news every single day. He's still very, very visible. And that's what he does. He trades on that publicity, uh, whereas Joe Biden is conspicuously not there, so to speak. However, we have seen this before. You know, there have been times in the past that Trump has been ushered by either advisors or others to roll back from his his controversial statements. This happens for two or three weeks, and then Trump just kind of reverts back to form. He is his own man. You know, he has advisors as any president does, but he is much more. You know, I will, I will, I will listen to what you have to say, but then he'll go and do his own thing. In my own personal view. I think it's probably the latter, you know, I think he, he finds it very hard. The psychology of the president is very interesting. And I urge our listeners actually to just go on YouTube and watch some stuff about um, psychologists discussing uh, the president's mind, because it genuinely is fascinating to see how it works, whether you agree with him or not. But I think one thing that you can read from his psychology is he doesn't like to do something that's imposed on him. 
whether that be just a chore or something like a campaign strategy. He is his own man and he will do what he thinks is right to win. And therefore, I think it's unlikely that he'll stay on script for long. Um, and if he doesn't stay on script for long, perhaps that will mean that his poll numbers continue to fall. Or perhaps not. I mean, this isn't radically different action to the one we saw in the run-up to the 2016 referendum. He's still his bombastic self. I think the thing that's changed now is that being bombastic at a time of a roaring economy and focusing on issues that whip up your base is fine, but doing that during a time where over 100,000 Americans have died and there's a pandemic which is still very much alive and well in the US, you know, I mean, I think in, in Florida on one day there were more recorded cases, more new recorded cases than the whole of the European Union. This is serious. I don't think voters will buy that sort of attitude or adhere to that sort of attitude, given the national crisis that the US faces. Well, we'll be sure to keep an eye on that then, and it's serious food for thought in the run-up to the 2020 election. But we'll move on now, because there's been a situation in the US city of Portland and with federal officers. So can you explain a bit about what's been going on there? Yes, well, in recent weeks, the situation has been getting a little bit out of hand with protesters um, who are still protesting um, on the Black Lives Matter issue and movement and the law enforcement response to that. In Portland, um, which is uh, the largest city in Oregon, Oregon is a state on the west of the US, just uh, between California and Washington state. Protests have been going on for more than 15 nights now, uh, ever since Mr. Floyd sparked off a wave of international protests. They've been going on constantly in Portland. Portland has quite a radical history of political movements, it should be said. And in response, Trump has said, sent federal agents to Portland to quell what he deems as the more radical elements of the protest movement. So in the US, what do we mean by federal agents? So these sort of, these aren't presumably secret agents, these are more police forces, I'd imagine. Sort of. I mean, they come from various groups. Trump actually, Mr. Trump actually explained this in a recent speech when he announced that he was sending federal agents, not only to Portland, but also to Chicago, another city which has seen many um, difficult protests in recent weeks. Let's hear what he had to say. The FBI, ATF, DEA, U.S. Marshal Service and Homeland Security will together be sending hundreds of skilled law enforcement officers to Chicago to help drive down violent crime. And murderers and violent criminals are breaking a wide range of federal laws. We have that. It's as wide as it can be. We will find them, arrest them, and prosecute them. They will be in jail for many years to come. So, as you heard from the clip, these federal agents are drawn from several agencies like the Border Patrol and the U.S. Marshal Service. Unlike police, and this is the really important thing, they don't answer to local political forces, whether that be state um, representatives or you know, regional city governments. They answer directly to the president and they're controlled directly by the president. And they have been acting in what has been deemed by some protesters as a very, very um, conflictory manner. Uh, reports have differed here from videos. Sometimes they look like a very highly militarized force, dressed in camouflage material, and they have an array of anti-riot and assault weaponry. Um, a lot of tear gas has been used. There's even one video in which the the Democratic mayor of Portland um, was tear gassed at when he was attending one of the protests. There's been reports of people and video evidence, although I should say unverified video evidence, of people being detained in unmarked vans and taken off. There's a lot of suspicion and mystery in the air about these federal agents how they're operating, what tactics they're using, and how they're going to achieve their goals. Um, but they've come into a lot of criticism from not only uh, Democrats and other uh, city governors and city um, officials, but also um, from the people on the street protesting in Portland. So what do you think is Trump's reasoning behind using federal agents? And do you think there's sort of a political element to any of this? Of course. I mean, there is undoubtedly, as with 
most things that Trump's done, there is some sort of political angle here. Quite a uh, quite good piece to listen to was uh, Kayleigh McKenney's um, dis description of the rationale. She's obviously the White House's press secretary. Let's listen to what she had to say. The well-organized mob in Portland has become increasingly aggressive, especially against law enforcement officers. Individuals have thrown bricks, chunks of concrete, glass bottles, feces, balloons filled with paint, pig's feet, slingshots to hurl ball bearings, and batteries at federal agents and the courthouse. But according to Speaker Pelosi, when asked about the violent removal of statu statues, uh, people will do what they do. The Trump administration urges state and local officials to work cooperatively to restore law and order. I think the last phrase she used, law and order, that kind of summarizes it. I mean, this is about reinforcing the image uh, and perhaps the reality that there is order in the US and that there is rule of law, that these um, self-characterized radical elements from the Trump campaign are not controlling the streets. It's very, as we've discussed in previous episode, it's very reminiscent of previous um, arguments used by presidents of both stripes, not just uh, Nixon, I'm thinking of Ronald Reagan, but also Bill Clinton. He was often uh, deemed as, you know, we need to get tough on crime and law and order and that sort of stuff. So it's a tried and tested political um, political tactic and it plays to his base. He also, I think, genuinely does believe that these people are very, very dangerous, whether they are or actually not in reality. I don't think it's neither here nor there. In his, in Mr. Trump's perception, these people are his enemies and he wants to quash that quickly. Do you think it'll work then? Well, so far it hasn't. Um, uh, federal officers were deployed, um, federal agents were deployed some time ago and the protests have continued. The violence on the streets have continued. And even in terms of the political element, is his law and order message working? Well, as we've seen in the previous segment, you know, his, his poll numbers are going down through the floor precipitously. Trump has a massive problem in this regard. And, you know, assuming in a world where coronavirus didn't happen and um, the economy was still strong, you could see this message working quite well. It plays to his base, plays to middle America, plays to the, the, the America that is generally quite unpolitical, quite rural, quite um, uh, unsympathetic to these sorts of movements and views. However, I really do think it is getting drowned out by the economic crisis that the US is facing and also obviously the pandemic issue. Will it work in restoring law, you know, calm on the streets of Portland, Chicago and other cities? I mean, I, I think it's doubtful. I don't think these protesters are willing to back down. I mean, even just in the last few hours, we've seen reports from Seattle of disturbances there um, with federal um, agents or, and local police. So I don't think this is going anywhere. And I think that the more militarised and hard um, the federal officers and police get, the more determined these protesters are going to be. I think this issue is just not going away and I don't think it can be uh, clamped down upon to, to, to put it into a phrase to get rid of it. Um, so it's definitely one to watch, especially given the fact that we can expect that both sides will double down in the run up to the presidential election this year. That's definitely a hugely significant year in US political history then. Now, lastly, I know last week we discussed uh, the EU trying to hammer out a deal to discuss their rescue package in the run-up to the economic recession. But after our last episode aired, they have announced a deal. Now, was it as broad as we expected? Uh, what's it like? Yes, I mean, the key tenants of the deal that's been announced were what we essentially expected. On the issue of grants, uh, as we discussed last week, there was some, some consternation from the frugal four countries, countries that didn't want to give much away in grants, uh, and the southern European countries, which have been hit quite badly economically. Um, they've reached a deal on a figure of 390 billion uh, euros to be given in grants raised by debt from the European Commission, which was the figure widely expected. It was seen as a compromise figure. On the other more interesting issue of whether this aid could be tied to certain things like um, your democratic nature of the country and the, the rule of law in the country. Obviously, you had the two opposing sides of you know Poland and Hungary saying, 
it would be wrong to tie this economic aid to those political incentives. This should just be a discussion about economics. And um, various other countries said, no, if you're going to receive this money, you have to play by the rules. Both sides have kind of strangely said, we have won in these negotiations. You've got Hungary coming out and saying that, you know, this is good. We now have the aid, we have a deal, and it's not tied to these political requirements. Whereas on the other hand, you've got um, more liberal European leaders saying, ah, this is brilliant because for the first time, I think Charles Michel said this, he's the head of the European Council. He said, this is brilliant because for the first time ever, we've got a mechanism to ensure that countries keep to their rule of law requirements if they want to receive the money. Both sides clearly cannot be true. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because if there are these rules, clearly Hungary in some counts will fall foul, if not now, but eventually. What will the EU do, if anything? And will there be potential busts up later on? Uh, we wait to see, but it is a very historic moment, this. I think this will be judged in, in the light of kind of the importance of the Lisbon Treaty or even the Maastricht Treaty, perhaps, because as I said last week, and I'll reiterate it again, this is the first time that the European Commission has acted as a normal state and borrowed on the backs of everyone, of course that means on the backs of the richest members of the European Union, more than the poorest members, to give and redistribute wealth to the poorest members. That's what any country does from Britain, where, you know, London, there's wealth redistributed through taxation and borrowing from London to other regions of the UK, or even the US, or any other nation. It's a massive step to nationhood, in my opinion, um, and it's going to be interesting to see how this deal pans out for Europe. Very interesting. Well, that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Remember, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and available on all streaming platforms. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.